for the first, I'd say up until 10 million ARR, all I cared about was cash flow. I, I tried not to even remember what EBITDA stood for. And I would always just have this cash forecast uh, showing when the cash comes in and when it goes out and just making sure that we never ran down to maybe more, you know, having less than like two to three months worth of expenses in the bank. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Hi there, it's Alex from SaaStock here. It's a new year, you've got new goals to hit, new team members to hire, company culture to maintain and improve, people problems, maybe investors to report to. Don't you just love being a founder and CEO? From one founder CEO to another, I actually bet you do. And despite New Year's bringing plenty of optimism, it also bears a massive weight around us. Sometimes it gets a bit much. Being a CEO is really the toughest job and it's very lonely to do. But you don't have to let it be lonely. Don't try and figure everything out all by yourself. Almost every successful founder I've spoken to has never done that. They've been part of support groups. None have been SaaS founder specific though. And that's why we created the SaaStop Founder Membership, which is the first support organization for B2B SaaS founders to help you scale to 10 million ARR and beyond. Because we've spoken to more SaaS founders than most on the planet, we know what it takes to boost your personal and business velocity. It requires the right support, network and education. There is a proven path. As you think about your personal and business goals for 2024, think about whether you'd have a better chance of success surrounded by a like-minded group of other SaaS founders that are on the same journey as you. Whether a stronger network of SaaS founders will help you, I know what the answer is, it will. Now the SaaS.Founder membership is here to support you, work towards your 2024 goals and beyond, to help you overcome the odds of scaling your business and helping you become a more confident founder and CEO. Don't go it alone. Apply to join today, sasdoc.com forward slash founder dash membership uh, and find out more there and apply today. I'm very excited to be able to have a conversation with Greg. Um, Greg is the consummate entrepreneur, started his first business when he was 14 years old. Um, he was making websites for the local newspaper um, and for drug uh, trial companies. Um, and then he started his first podcast in 2005, which I think was before the word podcast was, uh, was invented. Um, and on that podcast, he interviewed uh, people like Reid Hoffman, when Reid had about 50 employees uh, from LinkedIn, the founder of Yelp, um, and the founder of Vanguard. Um, and then he went on to start Muckrack, um, and uh, he's grown Muckrack to 50 million in ARR, uh, totally bootstrapped. Um, Muckrack today um, has over 250 employees, um, and it provides um, so a software solution for PR executives, um, and the mission of the company is to transform the relationships uh, between PR executives and the media, and to generate relationships of trust. Um, and uh, the company's grown over the last three years by 338%. It's tripled uh, the employee headcount. Um, so I'm very excited uh, to be here with Greg uh, and for Greg to tell us a little about the journey. Um, and so really just start off and tell us how did, you, how did you become an entrepreneur? How did you found Muckrack? 
Sure. So I got started, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, er early age, 14. I always loved creating companies, building companies. And when I was uh, finishing up college back in 2005, I, I was getting stuck in, uh, I was in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. I kept getting stuck in traffic and I hated Atlanta radio. So it was just when the iPod had come out and I had this idea like what if we could download audio to the podcast and, uh, or download audio to the iPod that's uh, spoken word rather than just music. At the time, that was a new idea. I saw there was this new thing called RSS feeds with enclosures, which later got dubbed podcasting. Uh, from the iPod. Nobody thought the word would stick because everyone thought Apple was going to sue everyone out of existence, but uh, obviously it stuck. And I had, th had this idea to launch a podcast and interview entrepreneurs, which now is an extremely common format in podcasting, but back in 2005, no one had ever done it. So among the people that I interviewed was Ev Williams, who was working on a startup called Odeo. And uh, Odeo, if you've never heard of it, it's because it didn't work. It itself was a podcasting company. So I watched Ev pivot from Odeo to a little side project called Twitter. And that led me to sign up to Twitter really early. I got my first name on there. So I'm just at Gregory on Twitter just because I was the first Gregory to sign up for it. And then from doing, uh, doing, the shorty, or, or from doing uh, that podcast and being on Twitter really early, I had this idea we could launch a site, we could find the best people on social media uh, by voting with a tweet, which again, now is a very common idea, but no one had ever let someone vote with a tweet back in, uh, this was 2008. So launched the Shorty Awards back in 2008, got a little uh, timeline here, if they can switch to uh, showing the uh, slides on screen. Slides. Uh, if you could put the slide. And also the timer, you've got to click, click again. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think, I, I think we got it now. So um, yeah, you can see back in 2000, uh, 2008, launched this award show for best of social media. And then uh, after seeing uh, how uh, well that did, it went viral within 24 hours. It was a top trending term on social. I saw lots of journalists covered this award show, the Shorty Awards. So that led to the idea to launch a site where first ever site we could see all the journalists in one place and what they were doing on social media. So we launched Muckrack, the first version of it, back in 2009 uh, as the first site where you could see all the journalists on social in one place. And then it took off with journalists. Originally, we had no business model. Uh, so it's just, a, and we built it in two weeks. And I, my philosophy with business is always if you can build and launch your business in under a month and for under a couple grand, just do it and figure out the business model later. Because if it doesn't work, you can always scrap it and try something else. So we launched Muckrack. It became very popular with journalists. We had over 10,000 journalists request to get listed in that first year. And then uh, very quickly after that, uh, being in New York at the time, I'd run into all these PR people they'd tell me they're using our, our free site to do their job to find the right journals to pitch. And that made me realize like, oh wait, we have this whole profession using our free website to do their job. We have all the data that they need. Uh, the one thing we don't have is a business model and we didn't build tools for that purpose. So we, we chatted with lots of these PR people, we figured out what they need. And then in 2011, we relaunched Muckrack, uh, built, rebuilt it from the ground up 
as a SaaS platform. We keep it free for journalists, and we go to corporate PR teams, uh, be it Fortune 500 companies or startups, as well as PR agencies, and give them this SaaS platform that helps them do their job and be successful. Um, so it took a few years to get to a million in ARR. Um, you know, I think that's really the toughest stage. How did you keep going? How did you not give up? <laughs> yeah, so it was like a, a, a long toil. As you can see, we, we titled this the overnight success story, and it only took, uh, took a decade from pivoting to SaaS, or you know, a dozen years if you uh, include the, the years that it, it was free. And uh, yeah, it was a slow growth. And we actually used the Shorty Awards, which were uh, profitable from the beginning, to kind of fund the early days of Muckrack, the SaaS platform. And you know, when we launched, I think uh, in that first month, we got maybe, I don't know, 8,000 in MRR. So, you know, barely enough to pay for one person. And it, it was a couple of us working, at it, working on it at the beginning. So there were a lot of years of just like a handful of us, you know, first two, then three, then four, running this entire SaaS business. I remember I was one, the customer support phone number used to just forward to my cell phone. I remember I, I was walking to work. We had some customer call up and I picked up. I said, hi, this is Greg. And he's complaining about something. And then he was like, hey, you know, that's, I've had enough. Can I speak to your manager? <laughs> and I had to kind of say in this embarrassing way, uh, I'm actually the CEO and founder. He's like, oh, okay. And then we, we, we worked through it. So it was just a lot of, uh, you know, kind of twirling with it. But, and, and the hard part, too, in early days in SaaS is it takes so much longer to get to scale with SaaS, especially if you're a small ACV, which, which we were at the beginning. We went up market later. But when we started, it was like, you know, as low as $99 a month, and, and someone could just sign up with a credit card. So um, the challenge is really like, you know, in those early days, it just takes so long to get to any kind of scale. And, and my co-founder, uh, Lee Semmel, and I were watching friends of ours who launched agencies. With an agency in a year, you get to a million in revenue and, you know, start paying yourself decently. So it, it was just like all this toil. But... A lot, largely from doing my podcast, I had seen these other entrepreneurs really scale these SaaS businesses. And, I, and no one even called it SaaS back then, but it was just subscription revenue or reoccurring revenue. I was like, oh my God, if we could know exactly what we'd make every month and it was a sizable amount, it'd be an awesome business. So just kept at it. And the other thing was too, uh, meeting with customers. Like it, we'd try to meet with as many customers as we can. And I just found it so motivating to like, sit down with a customer who loved our software. And then it just really inspired us to go back and, and keep building more and more. Right. Do you think the same ex um, opportunities exist today for entrepreneurs as existed in 2009? I think the, the opportunities are always there. Like when we started Muckrack in 2009, we had a couple, uh, couple legacy competitors and we, we started as a point solution, and, and we actually originally positioned ourselves, like, I didn't know anything about this market. Like I said, we kind of fell into it. So I assumed the legacy competitors were serving the customers well, and we positioned Muckrack originally as this point solution. We even had an FAQ on our site where, like, don't cancel the legacy competitors. We don't compete with them. Just buy us in addition. You know, we're cheap. We do a couple things they don't do. And that'll be that. So I didn't even I didn't think this opportunity was there. And it, for at the beginning, we were like, "Hey, we'll be happy if Muckrack could make 
you know, 20 grand a month and then we could pay ourselves well and then we'll figure out some other big opportunity. Uh, but then when we started talking to the customers, they were like, hey, you know, we really don't like the legacy competitors. I wish you'd add this piece of functionality and that piece of functionality and that piece of functionality. And then we could just switch totally to you. So we, we kind of realized the opportunity by being in market. We didn't know this big of opportunity existed before we entered the market. So I, I think that that element exists in lots of different industries where it might seem like there's some really formidable incumbent in an industry, but you don't know. They could have been asleep at the wheel. Maybe they got acquired uh, by a bigger company that, you know, that's taken the focus off that market now, or maybe they're now going to pivot to some other market to get bigger and forget the market that got them there. So business is always dynamic. I think there's always opportunity out there. Right. Right. One of my entrepreneurs says you should choose, when you start a business, you should choose your competitors. Like, choose a bad competitor. Don't choose, you know, like, that's a good market. Um, you chose to bootstrap. You're in New York. All of your friends are, are getting venture financing. There's tons of, tons of funds. Um, a lot of your friends work in those funds. Why did you choose to bootstrap? Yeah, so I, I got to, what, one of my bootstrapping tactics was always to go to my friends who'd raised venture capital and had really nice offices and ask if they'd give me a good deal on subletting from them. So we did that for about a decade. We were subletting from venture-backed uh, companies and they, they, they had free sodas and coffee and snacks that they'd even let us uh, access. So we're venture-funded only in that way that we got to eat <laughs> the venture-backed food for free, but we never gave any equity to them. But I'd watch them and I'd be like, hey, you want to go out for a drink? They're like, I can't do anything because I have a board meeting coming up this week, so I got to spend a week before the board meeting uh, getting my five different venture capitalists on my board aligned because they all have different interests and different ideas for what we should do. And then the week after, I've got to spend dealing with the fallout of whatever you know, stupid idea one of them threw out at the board meeting. I've now got to you know, find a way to show them that that won't work. And a lot of them had to do it monthly, you know, at these early stage venture-backed companies. So I was always thinking like, hey, what if we just took all the time? And, and we seriously thought about raising venture a few times early on because when we had it, when we proved that it started to work, I mean, we, we could have definitely grown faster with venture early on. I'd say maybe until we got to like five or 10 million, it was always like, if you gave me another dollar, you know, there was some screaming issue in the business that really needed help. But I would always think about like, okay, I'm going to have to spend three months doing nothing but talking to venture capitalists. So I thought, what if I just spent those three months talking to customers and trying to get more business and grow the revenue stream, then at the end of that, we'll have more cash from the customers. We won't have any dilution and the business would be worth more. And I always just went through that calculus in my head. It always felt right to keep focusing on that. Also, I knew kind of the misalignment of interest. Again, I didn't know how big the business was. Like now we're, you know, we're at a venture scale where it would have been an awesome venture outcome. But I wasn't sure the scale of it. And I, I'd also heard horror stories from friends of mine where like they have a business that taps out at 10 million ARR. And it should be awesome because, right, if you have a 10 million ARR business, you run it at 20% margin, you take home 2 million every year. Like that, that's not, not, not a failure. But I, I have friends who ended up in that situation. They had venture capitalists on the board, and the venture capitalists were like, well, you can't, you can't take the $2 million out. 
we, we really just need to see some kind of exit so we can go raise our next fund. So they kind of get stuck with what should have been an awesome business and instead, uh, you know, it's this, uh, you, know, you know, kind of albacross that, that they can't uh, move forward from. Right. Well, so I, a lot of people in the audience are hitting you saying, wow, that's great, but how do you do that? How do you bootstrap? How do you keep the cost down? for 10 years, basically. What are, the, what are the tips for people that say, yeah, I'd love that, but I, I don't know how to keep my head above water? Yeah. Well, well, the really easy thing when you're bootstrapped is you just can't spend more than you're making. Uh, everyone now is like, oh, how do I be profitable? Because I've been you know, a venture-backed company and spending three times what I make. But there's just this discipline where I remember I had this spreadsheet uh, most stressful time of my month every month was this spreadsheet that was my cash flow forecast. I never looked at uh, revenue. I never looked at gap-based revenue or EBITDA because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter you know, if you have a month where you have you know, more revenue than expenses on a gap measure. You know, it just matters do you have more cash coming in than cash going out. So for the first, I'd say up until 10 million ARR, all I cared about was cash flow. I, I tried not to even remember what EBITDA stood for. And I would always just have this cash uh, forecast uh, showing when the cash comes in and when it goes out and just making sure that we never ran down to maybe more, you know, having less than like two to three months worth of expenses in the bank. And sometimes I violated that rule uh, when I was pushing it harder. But I would just focus on that. I really trained the team, you know, whatever people would ask for money or budget to do something, answer was always no, and they'd have to come back to me at least three or four times to try to get the budget. I mean, we would travel for conferences, and my HR department would never allow this now, but, you know, it'd be two to three of us sharing a hotel room, uh, you know, just you know, taking, you know, taking the Uber, uh, Uber X before, you know, that back when it was really cheap. So we, we'd kind of use every trick in the book to keep expenses down. When we finally uh, had a CFO join us, that was around like 10 million ARR. He was joking that like, usually when a CFO comes in, their job is to keep expenses down. They come in, they're like, oh, there's all this undisciplined spending. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop it. And when he came in, he was shocked that like, no one would come to him for money because I trained the team so well that like, you're gonna get such pushback if you ask for budget that they stop doing it that he had to do the opposite. He had to go to them and say, hey, where could we invest money to grow faster? Right. Um, where, I mean, where does the name come from, Muckrack? I don't know if it translates uh, in Ireland or, or the UK. So where's the name Yeah, this from? is after we launched. This is another thing when you, when you uh, start up really quickly, you don't do any market research. This is the term known in the US, but probably not known outside of it. And I, I put together a couple of slides to... Uh, uh, to make it clear, so it first got um, popularized by uh, Teddy Roosevelt. There were all these investigative journalists around the turn of the century in the progressive era in the U.S., uh, you know, 19, around the 1920s, uh, like Ida B. Wells and Julius Chambers and Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly even went undercover in an insane asylum uh, to show how, uh, you know, how many abuses were going on there. And so Teddy Roosevelt coined them muck rakers. Originally kind of as a derogatory term, like, hey, they're digging through the muck, they're digging through the mud to find these stories on us. But over the years, journalists really loved the term because it showed 
uh, that they were actually investigating and getting real stories, not just regurgitating uh, what politicians or companies told them. So here we are sitting around in 2009, and we were thinking like, okay, we have uh, muck, uh, muck rakers is this uh, term that journalists like, and we're doing a site about journalism. And we thought, well, we're going to put all the journalists and all the news in one place. So we had this idea of a newspaper rack or a magazine rack. And then going back to the bootstrapping idea, the big limiting function was our $8 branding budget, which is exactly what it cost to buy an open domain name on GoDaddy at the time. And so we put all that together and got Muckrack, and that's been our name ever since. Right. Um, so fast forward, build the business, get to 50 million in ARR uh, without taking any funding, and at that point you take funding. Why, why do you take funding then, and how has that changed your life for good and for bad? Yeah, it's been all evil. No, it's, <laughs> it's been great. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, so last year, we, we'd gotten to scale by, by last year, we got to about 50 million uh, in ARR. So, you know, significant scale. Oh, oh, last year was over 200 people. We're, we're uh, quite a bit bigger now and we're still growing profitably. We kind of reached this crossroads. We're like, okay, we're at scale. Uh, we had lots of offers to sell the whole business. Uh, but, but we were thinking like, okay, well, what do we really want to do here? You know, and, and my co-founder and I own the vast majority of the, the company uh, still going into last year. And, and we were thinking like, okay, you know, do we just sell the whole thing and we'd have enough money to be set? Or you know, do we keep going and go bigger? I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who'd sold their company and most of them get really bored very quickly and uh, kind of aimless in life. And... Uh, and uh, you know, they just end up going back to start another company. So I was thinking, like, you know what? Let's just, let's just go big and see how, it, like, we feel like the market's there. We think we can get the business to be 10 times the size it is now and, and grow the market. And, and it's an exciting thing. Like, the news is always changing, and we're kind of at the forefront of how these companies interact with the news. So we thought, like, hey, let's go really big with this company and, and kind of keep growing it to the next scale. And we had uh, uh, Susquehanna it, it actually been courting us for quite a while. You all invited me to uh, some of your past CEO summits and got to know that. Also, I have to say, like, part of why I avoided taking money was all the horror stories I, I said about venture capital at the early stage. And then talking to entrepreneurs who'd done these similar deals later in the company lifecycle, after they're profitable, after they're at scale that having a, a partner is very different because you're no longer dependent on them like you are when you, you know you need more money. So if you, do, if you do a deal when you're unprofitable, no matter what you put in the term sheet, you kind of have a boss because you know you're going to need to go back to them for more cash. But once you're profitable, it totally changes the dynamic and that you know, the company's working already. Uh, you know, it's not going to be kind of a, a boss relationship anymore. And uh, in addition to that, you know, it's clear, like at, at scale, you have a management team, you know what you're doing, the company has a vision. It's not like the early days where, hey, you're going to pivot every six months and you might disagree with the venture capitalists on which way you're pivoting. So I got a lot more comfortable with it after talking to more and more other entrepreneurs. So really, the, the, you know, we didn't have to do it, but I figured, you know, this opportunity is there. We'll get a healthy valuation. We'll still, my co-founder and I are still the majority owners of the company and still in control. So we figured, 
hey, let's do it. We'll have a partner and we, we can use it to you know, get, get a little more support in terms of going really big and figuring out how we uh, 10x the business again. Okay, great. Um, and it's we been a little joy since then, right? <laughs> um, the, um, I'm just trying to think. That next slide, I can't remember what you were Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I put up the one from uh, going on Cheddar News when we made the announcement. Ah, uh, okay, cool. It was funny because a lot of people didn't realize how big we were. And probably a lot of you feel this way of your bootstrapping. It's like this kind of really quiet toil because like, if you raise a million in venture capital, you're covering TechCrunch, you get all this PR, everyone's congratulating you. You get to a million in ARR, nobody knows. And getting to a million in ARR, it's like such a bigger accomplishment than raising a million, because now you actually have a business that's, that's probably worth five or 10 million, you know, if, if, it's a, if it's a healthy business, and you're not diluted unlike that person who raised the million, but you get no press or no credit for it. So it's this very perverse uh, celebration incentive. So when we finally did this, it was kind of fun to, you know, to finally get the kudos uh, after getting to a... Uh, a bigger scale, but I'm really glad we didn't do it sooner. And uh, and you know you have to uh, remember to celebrate uh, along the way. And and you know even if you don't get the press for getting to a, a million or ten million in ARR, make sure you throw a nice party for your team and your friends. Um, so this past year, you brought on external CRO and external CMO. Um, what did you learn in that process? Uh, how do you know when it's the right time to do that? Yeah, so, so as we really scaled up, uh, you know, there's always this tension between promoting internally and bringing in uh, external people. And I think it's a healthy tension. And I think you want to do a bit of both. I'm really proud to say in, in both cases, our, our prior uh, head of sales and our prior head of marketing are still at the company and, uh, you know, still working and, and uh, you know, still have bigger jobs now, way bigger jobs now than when they joined the company. But we saw that you know, at this scale, when you have 250 people, there's a lot more complexity. And there's a lot of stuff I, I don't even know. Like I couldn't coach my, you know, anyone at my company to do what my CRO now does. He knows a lot more uh, about this than me. At my current CMO, I mean, they're both much more experienced than me and, and have spent more years in business than me. So, so we realized like, it was time to bring in external people. One, one thing I will say before we... Uh, had a partner who started working with Susquehanna, it was a lot harder to convince executives to join because they'd all be like, oh, you know, you're, uh, you haven't raised money. You're, is this some kind of lifestyle business? Or are you just going to be playing on the beach and my equity is never going to be worth anything? And we did give people equity uh, or an equity equivalent uh, prior to this, but, but people were very skeptical of it. So I had to spend so much time in the hiring process convincing them that, hey, this isn't some like weird little lifestyle business and that, yes, we're taking this seriously. And we kind we had a chip on our shoulder. We wanted to show, like, we're operating this business just as professionally, if not more, as a venture-backed business, even though we're not venture-backed. But it took a lot of work. And since doing the deal, now when I go to recruit executives, uh, we, I get to skip all that. They just read in the paper, like, or Google us, and they say, oh, you raised 180 million Series A from Susquehanna. They don't even bring it up. So it has made the... Uh, the hiring process a lot easier. Great. Um, finally, a um, bunch of SaaS entrepreneurs out there that want to get good PR for their companies. Uh, what's your tip for them? How do they get, how do they get the best PR? 
aside from signing up for Muckrack? Yeah, obviously they sign up uh, for Muckrack, the free version of First. Yeah, yeah, we're happy, we're happy to help. But uh, I think the big thing is just take a step back and either if you have a PR person you know, a PR professional or you know, a friend or a journalist, like, figure out what's newsworthy about your story. The hardest thing as an entrepreneur is we all think everything we do is amazing and the second we launch it should be on the front page of the New York Times. But in reality, uh, you know, probably exactly just saying, hey, we launched a great company, everybody's got that story. So you got to figure out what's the hook with our, our business, how is what we're doing related to some bigger stories and big trend in the news, and frame it that way. And I'm ha happy to help anyone out who needs it. Great. Thanks very much uh, for sharing. It's great chatting. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaSdoc conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.